morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, November 8th, we are studying Joshua chapter 22, verses 1 to 34. After the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River go home, a misunderstanding about an altar must be peacefully resolved. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Vance Becker. Pastor Becker is a LCMS missionary to Kenya, serving as a theological educator at Nima Lutheran College in Matongo, Kenya. Pastor Becker, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Fun to be with you. We get to talk about Joshua chapter 22 this morning. Pastor, as we get started, give us some context. What should we know as we prepare to look at this chapter today? Okay. Um, This may be repetition from what some others have mentioned. And I I also have to say, I know in your first episode on Joshua, you had uh, Adolf Harstead with you, who did a commentary on Joshua. Um, and I will confess that much of what I have to share is from that and another commentary also by Uncle 80. Um, so uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, He's your uncle? Is that My is wife's that right? uncle. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it is. Um, so uh, let me talk about the book as a whole, just mention um, that it's about the people of Israel entering and taking up residence in the promised land. Oftentimes, it is talked referred to as conquering. You know, they didn't actually take control. The book of Judges makes that even more clear. And I would say they didn't actually conquer because God made it clear he was giving it to them himself. Um, and uh, I, I would say he did this in a way that they were simply defending what God had given to them. Because after Jericho, uh, they make this deal Well, first of all, let me back up. Even before they get into the promised land, um, they had simply defended themselves against Sihon and Og on the other side of the Jordan River, and that's how they ended up with the land on that side, um, by defeating them. And then, after they came in, they made this agreement with Gibeon. And as a result of that, the southern king said, hey— we can't let that happen. So the southern kings attacked. They get defeated. That's how they ended up in control of the southern, just by defending themselves against them. The northern kings see what happened there, say, well, these guys are dangerous. So they attack. They defend themselves against again against the northern kings. And that's how they end up in control of the northern part. So I would say it's a defensive operation of the land that God has given them. Now, Uh, At the beginning of the book, chapter 1, Joshua calls these tribes to uh, keep their promise that they had given to Moses already, that they would come into the land, fight along with their brothers, take the land, uh, and then go back home. So they've done that now. Uh, Harstad says, this chapter here is the beginning of the final section of the book, in that he is showing 
how the people are now to live in this covenant relationship that God has given them because he has now kept all his promises to them. And Harsed says that's the central theme of the book. God has kept his promises. And can also be noted, these tribes now also have now kept their promises. So uh, this, this is the beginning of the end. It's sort of like a bookend to some things that happened at the beginning of the book. Uh, now, right before this chapter, chapter 21, the Levites are assigned cities where they're going to live. That's a sign that God has kept his promise to give the land. Here now in chapter 22, uh, we have the first of what Harstead calls three farewell speeches uh, by Joshua. The uh, next one's in the next chapter. Uh, he also compares this uh, uh, Joshua's farewell message to the personal greetings at the end of Paul's letters. Um, so we find that that kind of, you know, now we're done, here are my greetings. As far as bookends, I notice this also. The book begins with crossing the Jordan River and leaving a stone monument. Uh, and here now it ends with crossing the Jordan River and leaving a stone monument. Another bookend, at the beginning, when they attack Jericho, Achan steals some stuff for himself and the whole nation suffers defeat as a result. Now we see here at the end that concern, uh-oh, that could happen again. Don't bring suffering on the whole nation because you are doing something you shouldn't. Another bookend, at the beginning, they established a common place of worship at Shechem. Here now at the end, there is the question is, do they still have a common place of worship? And then in chapter 24, a little later, they renew that covenant at Shechem. So we see we're sort of uh, bookending uh, this, this whole book. Uh, another thing that's happening is foreshadowing. The problem here is sort of a foreshadow of the fact that actually does happen later. Uh, as other tribes in, in uh, First and Second Kings, as tribes of Israel do indeed set up a different altar and do indeed end up worshiping different gods. Mm. That's fantastic setting for us, Pastor Becker. You really laid it out and put this in the context. So we are at the beginning of the end of the book of Joshua, the first of three farewell speeches that we get from Joshua. Let's go ahead and jump in to Joshua chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them, and sent them away, and they went to their tents." Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. 
divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. I will pause there. That gives us the speech of Joshua, and we see action in the rest of the text that you've already given us a clue as to what's going to be coming, this disagreement, a misunderstanding over an altar that's built. But let's let's consider Joshua's first farewell speech, as you said. Uh, what, what does Joshua have to say to the people in those first few verses? Okay, and let me just comment. Yes, a good place to stop. I see this chapter breaking into basically four parts. The first, these words of Joshua. Uh, next, they're returning and building this altar. A third part, the response of the rest of Israel to that. And then the fourth part, the, the resolution of the issue that was raised. Um, so, uh, yes, Joshua's you know, comments to them. Now, these guys, as they agreed to do at the very beginning of the book, they've been away from their families for at least seven years. And so one thing Joshua is doing is dismissing them, honorable discharge. Uh, you could say that his words uh, have sort of three parts, a compliment, uh, verses two to four, you've done what you said you'd do, exhortation and encouragement, verse five, uh, and then blessing, verses six through eight. Um, I think it's Harstead that comments, uh, Let's also ourselves be very quick to compliment others, sort of beginning with the compliment, you know, good work. Uh, the uh, the, ble- the um, compliment includes in verse 4, where he says, God has given you rest from your enemies. You know, that's that's a big theme. This, this is the promised land, a land of rest. Um, so now you can rest because God has kept his promise to you. Um. But uh, in a similar way, you could say, comparing to New Testament, we always want to see Christ in this. Jesus has defeated our enemies by his death and resurrection. We now can have an even greater rest in our inheritance that is heaven. And now, because of what God has given you, be faithful to him. Don't turn away from him. He's the source of your rest and everything you need. So he goes on, be careful to do what he has told you to do. So verse 5, keep the command that the Lord has uh, given you um, to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and cling to him and serve him with all your heart and soul. We see here a couple of references to love and with your heart. It's not just a commandment of what you do. It is is what is in your heart uh, that God is looking for. And uh, walking in his ways, common Bible way of talking about your way of life, and cling to him. That's the, the word that is used of marriage. You uh, Husband and wife are to cling to one another, hold tightly. Um, so that's, that's the encouragement, the exhortation. Um, and these words may be sort of a foreshadowing by the, the writer who is putting it to show, okay, here's what's coming next, because there's going to be a concern that they, in fact, are not doing that. Now, why that concern? In a way, you could say that these tribes uh, are going to the other side of the Jordan, are, in a sense, going to be outsiders now, outside of this promised land. In a way, they're like Rahab. They're like those Gibeonites. 
who are outsiders, but still included in God's promise and God's promised people. But they run the risk of being like the rest of Israel, uh, which actually the all of Israel did not fully occupy the promised land. So they did not fully act in line with God's promises. And we have to say, you know, that's us too. We we are part of God's covenant people, uh, but we ourselves don't fully do everything God actually has told us to do. So there's always that risk of falling away. Um, and uh, the risk, especially because they're going to be on the other side of the Jordan, they're going to have more connection geographically and maybe commercially with the idol worshipers over there than with the people of Israel. And so there's always that that danger of simply going along with them in their way of worship as well uh, because of physical separation. For example, at the Tower of Babel, we saw people physically separated and as a result, they were not united in their beliefs or their culture either. And that's always the risk that can happen. Mm. So, uh, Yes. Well, Pastor Becker, so you, you've taken us through the compliment that Joshua gives at the beginning. As you said, he, that's the way he starts. You've kept the promise that you made. Mm-hmm. Now the Lord has given rest on this side of the Jordan. So it's it's time for you to go ahead and go home. He encourages them and exhorts them to be faithful in those words that sound very familiar to much that Moses said in Deuteronomy. And then you said there's the third part, the blessing, which is that's verse six, Joshua blessed them. And then you actually get some, some more words from Joshua down in verse eight. Is, is that the actual blessing that Joshua spoke down there in verse 8? I'm going to say yes. Yeah, he blessed them. Um, and, and the blessing is this, um, go with all your plunder. You know, go. You've got all these riches. So I'm going to say yes. And let me comment about the blessing. Okay. Now, Joshua's not yes, a priest. Please. What is he doing blessing? Well, he's blessing in a sense as a father would bless his children. That's the kind of role here. Well, so that's, I mean, in that sense, he's very similar to say what Jacob does with his sons at the end of the book of Genesis, or how Moses blesses the people of Israel at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. We see Joshua following in that same line by blessing these tribes here toward the end of the book of Joshua. Yes. And as in fact, really any Christian can bless others. Um, and so that's that's what he's what he's doing. All right, so this is this is Joshua's first of three farewell speeches given to the two and a half tribes who will live on the east side of the Jordan River. It includes compliment, exhortation and encouragement, and blessing. And the two and a half tribes go to their home. They cross back over the Jordan River. As you said, we've got a, a bookend with the crossing of the Jordan River from the beginning of the book. Anything else in these first nine verses that we need to pick up before we move on to the rest of the text? Yes. Let me just comment this, um, this instruction where he specifically says, now divided your spoil with your brothers uh, in verse eight. Uh, back in uh, numbers. Moses had instructed this, where there was a battle. Now divide the spoil. Looking ahead, we see this also. David does this in First Samuel chap, uh, chapter 30, where there's some guys that stay with the stuff and they go off and fight. Now you're going to share the plunder with those who didn't go fight, but they're part of your same group. So you're going to share it with them. Um, again, connecting to Jesus, uh, he's the one who's won the victory for us, but he shares the results of his victory with us. Um, 
And so that's what they're instructed to do. They're to remember, this is not just you're doing. God himself has given this to you, and so you share it. Uh, I could also uh, mention Pat, okay. that go ahead, go ahead. they go back to their, he says, you go back to your tents. Well, on the other side, they had taken some cities, they actually had homes, but sometimes tents is simply a way to refer to your, your temporary dwellings. Um, so that's, you know, their, their, their home, their temporary homes. Pastor Becker, as the text moves forward then into verse 10, you had mentioned that you you would divide this whole chapter into four parts, and we've looked at Joshua's words, and I think earlier you said that now we're going to see the altar is going to be built, there's going to be a response of Israel, and then there's going to be a resolution. So three parts remaining. Do you want to read the whole whole rest of the text, or you want to stop somewhere? What what do you think? Let's take 10 through 12 uh, and, and look at that a little bit and then go on. All right, so verses 10 to 12 of Joshua 22. Mm -hmm. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. All right, there's verses 10 to 12, Pastor Becker. Give us your, your comments. Okay, uh, a couple of questions here that some commentaries suggest are not that, quite, that clear. One is, what is exactly they built? The, the word used could refer to a circle of stones where there's that kind of thing in ancient uh, monuments as well. I am doubtful of that because it's pretty clear that it's it's, it's a big altar and there is talk of sacrifice. Um, uh, the other thing is exactly where is this? Uh, verse ten says they came to the region of the Jordan in the land of Canaan. At least one commentary says, well, it's not clear exactly which side of the river they build it on. And yeah, if it was on the other side of the river, I could see these other tribes getting upset. My impression is they came to that spot in the land of Canaan that's on the west side of the Jordan. Well, if it's on the west side of the Jordan, I'm not sure why they have a problem, but there can always be misunderstandings. Uh, But at any rate, it's large enough to be easily seen from a distance. That seems to be important. Well, and the fact, you know, the fact that they recognize that this is an altar, I, I think, you know, gives credence to what you were saying, that this, the people of Israel on the West Side, they know what it is. Now, let's talk about verse 12, where, where they get mad. Why do they get mad at this altar being built? Okay, that's sort of where the misunderstanding comes in. And one thing to note, we've got this, this Joshua's very brotherly, you know, blessing and dismissal how quickly it turns into suspicion and they're ready to fight. Um, Mm. Well, uh, there's a suggestion back in Deuteronomy 13. Moses gave the instructions. If it happens that wicked men lead others to worship false gods, you have to go investigate this. You need to inquire. You need to study it. If it's true, you have to kill everybody in that town. And there seems to be a bit of uh, suspicion You've built this altar. Now, what's up with this? Maybe because you didn't ask Joshua or any religious leaders about building an altar. And it's been very clear in this book that we worship in one place, the place God's put his name. So what's up with this other altar? And as I said, foreshadowing later on, 
Uh, Israel itself does indeed build another altar in another place and end up worshiping false gods. And uh, so they've just been told, don't worship any false gods. So what are you doing? Is that what you're up to here? Right. And so Deuteronomy 13, particularly the latter part of that chapter, provides the background to understand why those on the west side of the Jordan River are ready to make war. They're going to do their due diligence, find out what's really going on with this altar. And if it turns out to be an idolatrous altar, they're ready to do what Moses had given them to do in Deuteronomy 13. And so, as you said, very quickly, we've we've had a brotherly separation, and now this altar of imposing size, and you mentioned that the, the fact that it is large seems to be an important part of the, the narrative, and maybe you can, you can bring that out later as, as we continue through the text. But that's we've got this stage for conflict has been set here with this altar built by the east tribe, the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. Those on the west side have come. They're going to find out what's going on and if necessary, make war against them. How, how far do we need to keep reading now? Now, Pastor Becker. Okay, let us go uh, down to um, uh, verse 20. All right, so this is going to be what the people of Israel on the west side are going to say to those on the east side. So we're picking up now Joshua 22, verse 13. Mm-hmm. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, each one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, when tomorrow he, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity." It takes us through verse 20 of the text. So in verses 13, 14, and, and into 15, we hear about the delegation sent by the nine and a half tribes. Tell us about the delegation that gets sent, Pastor Becker. Okay. Uh, we've got various ones here. Now, one thing to notice is uh, that we've got Phineas, son of Eliezer the priest. Eliezer's the high priest. Phineas is just his son. Um, but it's interesting he has been involved before in dealing with apostasy. Down in verse 17, it talks about the sin at, at Baal Peor. That's where they started having the, the sex with the cult prostitutes of Baal. And it was Phineas who puts a spare through a guy and a woman who are in the process. And so he's got this zeal for, for uh, you know, fighting against apostasy. Then you've got chiefs from each of the tribal families. And it's interesting to me, that would include the other half of Manasseh. So you get half of Manasseh being mad at the other half of Manasseh. Um, 
And uh, so uh, the fact that Phineas is there is this not just a political issue, but this is a this is a spiritual issue as well. Um, hmm. And uh, one thing you could say about this, what they're going to do with this delegation is uh, similar to what Jesus says to do in Matthew 18. If you think somebody is doing something wrong, uh, notice before they, verse 12, they gather to make war against him. Well, give them the credit. Uh, before we make war, let's go talk to them. Uh, that's the right thing to do. Before you just make assumptions about people and you start fighting or criticizing or whatever else our old simple self leads us to do, how about we just go talk? And uh, if you think they've done something wrong, encourage them to repent. And if they do, then forgive them. That's the brotherly way to deal with things. Um, now, I'm just going to mention, we talked about, you know, why are they so suspicious? Maybe it's got a little bit to do with the fact that they were crossing the Jordan in the first place. I mean, what you guys don't want to be with us. You don't want to steal. There might have not spoken before, but maybe just a little feeling of suspicion. What's, what's wrong? Um, and it's interesting that, uh, well, okay, we, we talked about the delegation. Um, and uh, so I, anything else you want to notice about the, the delegation itself? Well, what you pointed out about the fact that uh, Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest, he's the leader of this delegation, and that indicates that this is a theological matter more than a political matter. It, it's somewhat surprising to me that Joshua doesn't appear to be involved, or at least he's not named in this delegation. You know, he was the one that gave the farewell speech to them, and now Joshua. I mean, I can't imagine it takes place apart from his knowledge, but but he's not mentioned here. And I, get, I guess maybe that just cements the fact that this is a, a theological dispute at its heart rather than a political one. That, yes. And don't I remember, wasn't there somewhere before here, uh, somewhere in this in this area, it mentions Joshua's getting pretty old. <laughs> he's ready to retire. That's true. <laughs> and maybe he's That's coming. Maybe yes. he's not up yeah. to this whole trip. <laughs> That's, that could be. That could be. Maybe Joshua, he just needs to stay at home this time. And, and Phineas, who is who is younger at this point, yeah. he's the son. Of, he's the grandson of Aaron. So Phineas, the son of Eleazar, he leads this again theological delegation to make inquiry to be a brother to these two and a half tribes, so they can find out what's going on. Rather than act rashly, they're going to find out what's going on, so that there might be reconciliation. And we're going to see that reconciliation on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Vance Becker this morning about Joshua 22. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. 
Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 8th. We're studying Joshua chapter 22, verses 1 to 34 with Pastor Vance Becker. He is an LCMS missionary to Kenya, serving as theological educator at Nima Lutheran College in Matongo, Kenya. Pastor Becker, prior to the break, we got through the delegation. We talked about who the delegation is sent to these two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan. And in verse 16, we hear how the delegation addresses these brothers. How, how does the delegation address them? What do they have to say? Okay. Uh, let me just first pick up one thing I didn't mention before. The, the, the group is referred to as the whole congregation of Israel. Um, you're 10 of the tribes. In other words, they're ta- it's described as if those guys on the other side of the Jordan, we're not really sure they're part of the group of Israel. So here, you know, the, the people coming are the whole group of Israel. Um, and again, Matthew 18, if you don't have repentance, you take to the whole church. Well, they're ready to, to go all the way with this. So here is their concern. Now, um, you're breaking faith with God. And Verse 17 sort of raises why they're concerned, because we've seen this happen before uh, when we came to, to Baal Peor. A few people sinned, everybody ended up suffering. Same thing happened with Achan at Joshua. He does what's wrong. Hey, a lot of us got killed in this battle that we lost because of that. You are going to get, it's not just you if you're unfaithful, you're going to get us all killed. Because God is this close to saying, I'm done with you guys. Uh, that happened. They came pretty close to that several times in, uh, in the, the, the wilderness during the 40 years. So <laughs> we want to be careful about that kind of thing happening. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, they, they, they actually they make a generous offer. They said, uh, you know, if that land over there, you don't, if you feel you're separated from God over there and you need to somehow have your own worship, well, come back over here. I mean, we will willingly give up part of the land that's assigned to us uh, to have you be here with us. So that's, that's sort of a, a generous, you know, reaching out kind of thing also. Um, mm. And so that's, that's the concern about what is happening. Mm. Yeah, I, the the as you pointed out, that very generous offer there in verse oh verse nineteen, I guess is where it is. Really, really struck me that they would rather give up their own possessions than have these brothers fall away from the faith. I mean, this is I think this is the brotherly concern that you know, as you mentioned, Jesus calls us to in Matthew eighteen, and and Saint Paul speaks about this in in terms of bearing each other's burdens. I think that's in, in Galatians six, that, that when we, when we go to a brother to call him to repentance, there's, there's always the willingness on our part to, to sacrifice, to do what is needed in order to help this brother out. You know, if it's, if it's a, a, a sin that someone has fallen into because there's been a lack of money or earthly goods that we would be willing to share what we have in order to you know take that away from the the brother so that the brother doesn't have to to fall into sin and think that that's the only way he's got out no i mean what what a marvelous example that is set here by these nine and a half tribes in order to and again we're going to find out that that there's not actually any malintent involved and they're not being idolaters but but they think that might be the case and and so 
man, they're willing to give up their own possessions in order to prevent their brothers from falling away. That's just a marvelous example, I think, of, of Christian Christian love. It is. And, you know, I referred to Matthew 18. There are other places in the New Testament as well where it talks about if, if your brother, you know, uh, sins here, you, you, you reach out and snatch him from the fire. Um, but you do it with love. And that always has to be remembered with church discipline or anything. Why are we doing this? Because we love them and we want to help them. And, and uh, it, if you aren't doing it that way, then as James says, watch yourself or you also will do wrong. You can sin in the process of dealing with other sin. And you, you need to make sure you're doing it out of love. Yeah, that's right. And and I think, again, this is just a wonderful example of that because they're willing to give up part of their own land. I mean, now, boy, when it comes to things like land and possessions, those are the types of things that that our hearts often cling to uh, very tightly. You know, this is my land. Who do you think you are to, to take it? But they're actually willing to give that land uh, to, to their brothers so that they would not feel this need to rebel against the Lord and and potentially use this idolatrous idol. It's it's also so there's there's certainly a sense of love for the brother that we would do well to to continue to emulate in the Christian church that whenever we we need to call a brother or sister to repentance that we do so with love and we are willing to help them so that they they don't fall into sin and they they don't need to think that that's the only path. The other the other concern that is here is they recognize that they're in this together that the what happens to those two and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan River is going to have ramifications for for their own tribes. And so you, you see that that desire to we need to take care of this lest all of us be destroyed. There's that sense of unity also there's a, a sense of warning that that seems to be involved in their their address as well. Yes, you know we, this is one reason why church discipline is important and, and other letters in the New Testament make that clear also uh, the reason we are concerned not just about them, but if you let this go, the whole church is going to get infected with this. Um, and, and so, yes, we have to care for everyone. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, we see the, the dual purpose for church discipline here. First, to bring the erring brother or sister to repentance. And second, to prevent the leaven from leavening the whole lump. So, that, I mean, and this, again, as you pointed out from the outset, this takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, which is where Moses gave these instructions. And, and there in Deuteronomy 13 and in other places in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses told the people, you know, purge the evil from among you. So that's, that is one of the purposes of church discipline is to remove that evil so it doesn't affect any others. And here, the nine and a half tribes and their delegation show themselves loving as doing so, willing to sacrifice so that these two and a half tribes don't fall into any sin or any error and they are are brought back from the brink of idolatry. Again, that's what they think. That's what they're concerned about. But there is there is the reality, which is going to be explained in a moment. Anything anything else from these verses before we move into to verses 21 and following? I think we're ready. All right. How far do you, you want to read the rest of the text or you want to, you want to stop somewhere? Tell you what. Yeah, let's go through... Um, uh, let me see it here, uh, through verse 29, because here now is what I would call part three, the, the two and a half tribes response. All right. So Joshua 22 verses 21 to 29. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. 
If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. That takes us through verse 29. So here we have the response of the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. And they start by by calling upon the Lord's name in a variety of ways. What's what's going on there at the beginning of their response? Uh, now, that's a good question. Now, in the ESV, which you're reading and I have in front of me, that it looks like it's sort of repetitious. The mighty one, God the Lord. The mighty one, God the Lord. In the Hebrew, uh, there's actually... Three is not four, but three. Three d- different names for God. El, that is the mighty one. Elohim, uh, you know the that plural name uh, that we associate with the Trinity, and Yahweh, Lord. And it's been suggested that using these three different names for God is another hint at the Trinity. So you know that God, that that one God, is basically what they're emphasizing. Uh, we also believe in that one God. And, and he knows, he knows our hearts, um, and we want you to know what he knows. It's sort of like a, um, a swearing, swearing an oath. You know, I swear to God, mm-hmm. uh, this is true. God knows this is true, is basically what they're saying. And so they, they deny the accusation. They use the same words that were used against them. It was not rebellion. It was not breach of faith. They themselves said, again, like swearing, if if it was indeed that, then may God, then yes, God strike us down. You know, we, we agree. Um, God take vengeance. You don't have to bother. God himself should strike us. Uh, it's a way of agreeing, yes, what you're concerned about, that indeed would be very wrong if that's what we're doing. But that's not what we're doing. Um, and it's interesting. They explain then, why do we do this? Well, well partly it's out of fear. <laughs> and you know, that is one of the devil's main tools. He, that's one of his main things he'll use to get us to do what is wrong. Now, not that what they're doing necessarily is wrong. Uh, maybe he'll advise they should have asked first, explained first, but fear. Uh, and basically, that's what's bringing the other tribes against them. Again, it's fear. Um, we were afraid because we're on the other side. And, you know, it could happen. And realistically, it could that you people say, you know, you're not really part of us. You're over there on the other side. So not only 
that we have the risk of us disassociating ourselves with you, uh, but maybe you would disassociate us with you. And we want to make it clear that we are part of you. And as I commented, there's a little bit of a question, exactly which side of the river was this big altar on? To me, that's another thing that was suggested it's on the west side of the river. It's sort of like, yes, we're over here, but we've got this little toehold on the other side. That's our altar. We built that. And, and so we, that's our little, little bit of claim to, to a land on that side that, that we are part of what's going on over there. Um, oh. And, um, you know, because not having, let me just jump in. Let me jump in there Please. real quick. Cause I, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. What you said about it being on the West side of the Jordan river as a, as a toehold on that side, or even as a reminder for the, the people on the Eastern side that, yeah, we do, we need to cross the river to go worship and, and we're not going to go worship at that altar. That's there, right. That we can see just across the Jordan river. Cause it's, it's much larger than the one, but that altar on the it being on the west side would would make sense to me because then yeah they'd know hey we got to cross the river to go across and and that's where we worship and and we're going to go all the way to where the lord's tabernacle is to the altar there which which that one on the west side that we can see that looks like it so i yeah i, I think that makes a lot of sense yeah so we are recognizing that yes we have to cross the river to worship yeah, that's right. That's right. And and it's it's a really go ahead. I, maybe this is a time to talk a little bit about the size of this altar. You said it's it's imposing size is what the text gives us in the ESV. How does that how does that play into this? Well, I think that again fits with their ex. You know, they give this explanation, and okay, are they making this up? Is this an excuse? The the size of it sort of fits with their explanation. They say it's 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 a monument. Um, it's it's something to be seen, and yes. We can, if it right. is indeed on the other side of the river, we can see it from our side. Um, you obviously noticed it. It wasn't some little thing. Yeah. The size of altar you would actually use for worship is probably not so big that, that you know, the whole, oh, hey, look at that over there. Um, right. And uh, so it is a, it, it's a monument for witness. And uh, the, the term they use here is the same as the word for a witness in court. Uh, it's the same idea, uh, you know, when Jacob, uh, left Uncle Laban and went back down. And there have been some tensions between him and Uncle Laban. He built a stone monument as a witness between me and you. It's that, sort of that same kind of idea um, as sort of a reminder of here's what happened here. And, and let's remember the, the meaning of this. Mm. And so a witness between the two sides of Israel, the the east side and the west side of the Jordan River, a reminder that they are, in fact, one Israel who comes together to worship the Lord at his one chosen place. And so that that altar serves for the western side to remember, hey, don't write off the tribes that are on the east side. They're a part of Israel, too. And then it, it serves as a reminder for the east side. Yes, we do need to go back across the Jordan River to worship at the Lord's altar and, and there alone. We're not going to use this copy of the altar, but we're actually going to go to the tabernacle, to that one place that the Lord has given. Yeah, and that is a main emphasis in, in the book of Joshua. There's this one place. And so they say it's a copy. Actually, the, the tabernacle and the altar itself are copies. They're copies of what God showed Moses, um, that true ultimate tabernacle, uh, which is in heaven. Uh, that true ultimate altar of sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ himself. So everything in the 
Everything here is simply a copy, a picture of that. And of course, everything in everything in the Old Testament, all of their worship is a copy, a picture of what God ultimately is doing for us uh, through Jesus. Um, and then the reference, as you use it, to to the one tabernacle, they themselves in their defense talk about the one tabernacle is showing, no, 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 there's just one. Um, that tabernacle where God's presence is, yes, that is the tabernacle, that is where God's presence is, and and that's where we're going to be involved in worship. Hmm. All right, so we've we've got the delegation. They have given their, this is what we think is going on. Now the two and a half tribes have responded. Here's what's really going on. There's not any idolatry taking place. We've got this set up as a witness between you and me. We're going to see how it gets resolved. Anything anything else from verses 20, before 29 before we move on to the rest of the text? Yeah, just a couple of things. You know, at the beginning, they say, no, it's not that. Then at the end of their speech, they sort of summarize. They again say, nope, it's not for offerings. Um, and again, they, de- they deny the charges of rebellion uh, and turning away. It is interesting in verse 29, they say, okay, so we're not rebelling. We're not turning away. We are not building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice. Those are the three kinds of offerings that were mentioned uh, back in Leviticus and uh, as the kind of offerings you're bringing. So basically, all these kind of offerings you could do on an altar, no, we're not doing any of those, Um, just to make it very clear. All right, so we have a few verses left in our text today. This is Joshua 22, beginning now at verse 30. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. That's the rest of Joshua chapter 22. So we have a peaceful resolution. Everyone goes home happy. Uh, give us these, these last few verses, Pastor Becker. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so they say, all right, we accept your explanation. And they sort of say, hey, we appreciate that. <laughs> because uh, yeah, it would have been terrible if you were separating and if you were going to worship other gods, then all of us would would suffer as a result. But if we had attacked you, you saved us from that too, because that would have been a terrible thing to do. So thank you from for saving all of, not just saving yourselves by this explanation, but saving all of Israel from being very guilty of doing this terrible thing. And uh, so then uh, Phineas himself uh, says, where is it here? Yes, verse uh, 31 he basically is affirming their claim. He says, okay, today we know the Lord is in our midst. Um, uh, no, that's not the verse I'm thinking. Where is the verse here where he is saying um, that, 
you are not I'm looking my eyes are not falling on him. Um, he says, okay, that's good. We, we accept your explanation. We agree. You are not doing, uh, these things that, that, uh, we had feared that you were going to do. Um, it looks like the words of, of Phineas are in verse 31. Uh, Today, we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. That's, that's what those I was look like the words. Yes. Of his words, you have yeah. not committed this breach of faith. Um, and, and notice he says, who's he giving credit to for this? It's God. God is the yeah. one who is in our midst. God is the one who has worked this out so that now there is reconciliation. And it's true. You know, ultimately, our reconciliation with each other comes from the, the great reconciliation of God with us through Jesus Christ. So God is the, the reconciler himself. We are we're the ambassadors of reconciliation, but he's the one that, that does it. And uh, then also, uh, so, he, so he blesses God. Um, in a, we respond to God's blessings to us by blessing him. This word blessing sometimes is used in a sense of, of saying thank you. God, uh, you are so good. Uh, that kind of blessing for, for doing this for us. And uh, so we have sort of two parts to this, this here. We've got, we've got Phineas saying, okay, we accept that explanation. We know that it's good. And then beginning with verse 32, he goes back uh, to the people on the other side, and then they accept the report, and they also agree with it. So in verse uh, 30, uh, it's good in their eyes. And then in verse 33, everybody else says, okay, that's good in their eyes also. We accept this. Um, mm. And that's where the, the blessing of God is. And they're not talking about making war anymore. And um, it's interesting to me, and I don't have a good reason why. It, it, here at the end, it mentions Reuben and Gad. I uh, just mentioned the half-tribe of Manasseh. That was mentioned before. I, I noticed that too. Yeah. I noticed that happens. That happened a couple times where it only would mention Reuben and Gad and not Manasseh every time. That, that struck me as well. I'm not sure why. I, I I confess I don't really have a good idea either. I mean, uh, I'm good if I don't know an answer of making one up, but but uh, <laughs> I, I don't have a don't have a good answer to, to make up either. Um, so it's resolved, and then verse 34. Uh, so they name it witness. And, and I have to wonder, you know, whenever I see something in the Bible, I say, and I say, you know, it, it, it seems to me that it, it would have been just fine without this. I mean, if, you, if this chapter wasn't here, you would not say, hold it, something is missing. So why is it here? Um, and I have to wonder if it is not in verse 34, it's the writer's explanation. So why is this? pile of stones here called witness at the time not written by joshua i think that's part of the the understanding it's written sometime about joshua whoever writes this at the time they write it there is this pile of stones called witness and he's explaining to people so this is why that's there and this is why it's called witness um so they name it and so what actually is the name some would say it's the whole phrase. It is a witness between us that God, the Lord is God. You know, fairly long name, but maybe that is the name, or maybe it's simply witness. And and their explanation of the name is 
that it's a, a witness between us. And, and here's the witness, that the Lord is God. We agree on that. This is a symbol of the fact that we agree the Lord is God, and there's one Lord. It's not a witness to, to our misunderstanding. It's not a witness. It, it's just a witness to the fact the Lord is God. That is what we agree on. Um, mm. And uh, it's a sign that we want to have the same God, uh, because in our midst, he is with us. God is the Lord. And in a sense, you could say there also is a picture of, of the one altar, and that is uh, the cross of Jesus, that, that one sacrifice that, that we receive at the, the, the one altar that we gather around for the Lord's Supper. Uh, that is what unites us and uh, makes us God's people together. Yeah, no matter what geographical boundaries may separate us, we do gather together to worship the one God. I mean, the, the Lord is God. What a very simple way of concluding the account that that it's it's a witness that the Lord is God, but that that is the confession of faith. That I mean, all the way back to, to Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We've got an echo of that here. And, and yeah, no matter what boundaries may separate us, even when there's a an Atlantic Ocean between you and me, Pastor Becker, yet we still have have this same confession of faith that the Lord is God. Pastor Becker, got about a minute left. Help us to wrap things up. How does this chapter point us to Christ? Well, I would say that uh, this is there is a natural human tendency to disunity. Um, what joins us together? What we're seeing here is what joins them together is they do indeed have the same God. Um, we also experience that natural disunity among ourselves. Uh, very eager to take offense and go against others and criticize what brings us together. It's what God himself has done for us through the one sacrifice on the one altar, Jesus Christ. Pastor Vance Becker is an LCMS missionary to Kenya, serving as theological educator at Nima Lutheran College in Matango, Kenya, helping us today with Joshua 22, verses 1 to 34. Pastor Becker, thanks for being our guest today. You are certainly welcome. God's blessings to all you do. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple. If you have any questions about the book of Joshua or comments on the series, or if you'd just like to tell us where you listen, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.